From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we speak with Dr. Nahid Siamdust about her new book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, which describes the legacy of the music of the Iranian Revolution. Stay with us. Music was one of the first official casualties of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Yet, even though it was banned following the establishment of the Islamic regime, it quickly crept back into Iranian culture and politics. Even the state made use of music for its propaganda during the Iran-Iraq war. Over time, music provided an important political space where artists and audiences could engage in social and political debate. Now, more than 35 years on, both the children of the revolution and their music have come of age. Soundtrack of the Revolution tells the story of the central role of music in various social upheavals in Iran, dating back to the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. Marihe spoke with Dr. Siamdost about her work and the birth of underground music in Iran. This music became a space for the country's youth to speak about their daily experiences and societal issues such as drug addiction, depression, poverty, and youth unemployment in the face of heavy political repression. Nahid, in our last conversation, we discussed the role of music in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution and during the eight years of Iran-Iraq war. What happened to the music scene in Iran right after the war? So after the war, there was a bit of a pause of some sort. The government was trying to figure out how to shape the scene after the deadly war had ended. And people were still sort of slumped in this phase of real sadness. They had lost a lot of people to the war. Really, the change that happened was that Akbar Rafsanjani was elected as president, and he came in with more of a moderate view toward the public sphere and opened things up to to some extent. So some cultural centers were built, more freedom was given in the public, and concerts started to be run. The, one of the very first ones was by the preeminent vocalist uh, of Persian classical music, Muhammad Azhajarian, and bit by bit. There were concerts here and there, and eventually, within a few years, this new interesting genre started happening that people referred to as classic pop. It really depended on who was who the creator was, the artist was, but it, it was a combination of folklore and march with more poppy sounds. It wasn't quite pop music. It still had a lot of remnants of this march music or other kind of uh, folk music. In your book, you write that there is still a lot of speculation about the reasons behind the government's decision to permit pop music. Many believe that the government decided to end its ban and partake in this lucrative entertainment sector simply because it was powerful to control the flow of expatriate pop music through the black market and newly emerging technologies such as satellite TV and the Internet. That's right. Toward the end of the 90s, what happened was was that a whole new generation of music graduates was coming out into the workforce. These were not ideological people. These were young kids who wanted to make music for a living. They'd studied music for several years, and they entered the workforce and were looking ways to make a living and created music. Of course, they were all in their early to mid-20s, so they their influences, their musical influences, uh, for the most part, were either pre-revolutionary pop music, which had maintained a very strong presence in the lives of Iranians well after the revolution. So in the first two decades of the Islamic Republic, a majority of the music that Iranians still listened to was coming in from Los Angeles, where the pre-revolutionary musicians had set up a home, a sort of pop empire, which is why Los Angeles is referred to as Tehrangelis. Your listeners will know this very well. 
And so for two decades, this is what they were listening. So their musical influences were coming from these pre-revolutionary mostly or post-revolutionary, but in L.A., sort of a similar style music and also from the West. So they created these musical pieces that were very clearly pop music. And for nearly two decades, the Islamic Republic had banned pop music mm. because pop music had maintained that subversive aspect because it was precisely the kind of society that Khomeini had decreed to be corrupt and that needed to be eliminated, the kind of music that needed to be eliminated. And so when all of a sudden, nearly two decades into the revolution, people started hearing pop music, one of the creators of pop music, Khashoyar Etemadi, who's sort of credited with having created the very first pop song in post-revolutionary Iran, uh, his anecdote was that he was sitting in a taxi and his song, which, you know, again, was this first pop song, when his song was played on the radio, he said the taxi driver just put his foot on the brakes, came to a screeching halt, and he said, oh, my God, I can't believe Daryush, this pre-revolutionary pop singer, is back. So this guy's voice is very similar to Daryush's. And to this taxi driver, it just sounded like one of these pop giants of pre-revolutionary of Shah-era Iran had returned to Iran. And he said, oh my God, things are really about to change in a big way. You also mentioned this in your book, that the voices and the styles, they were similar, as you alluded to, to popular Los Angeles star. And it was in order to draw attention of Iranians away from what authorities considered to be depraved, expatriate, content invading the country. Right. So a lot of people at the time thought this was a top-down decision. The, the decision makers within the very arch-conservative state media had decided to create this pop, which was very similar and similar sort of vo a lot of voices that were compared to those voices to deflect their attention away from these Los Angeles stars. But in effect, what I found in my research was that this process was not top-down. It was quite, and it's really instructive about how policy comes about or how cultural policymaking happens or and has happened in the Islamic Republic. Not, you know, the conspiracy theories of everything being completely controlled or top-down doesn't really work out in this instance. In this case, it was these young people really trying to push and taking their songs to state radio and to different places and trying to get them aired or published and you know being told for several years four to five years no sorry no can't do it your voice is too similar to this pre-revolutionary singer can't do it can't do it and then finally the person who was in charge of music in uh, state radio and television a uh, man by the name of Ali Muallim Dom Ghani. He was in charge of music and he happened to be uh, himself a poet, someone with a more open worldview and he also happened to be a confidant of Ayatollah Khamenei. So he had real political capital. He was someone who was not afraid from within state media to take certain action. And I'm sure there were many conversations back and forth and eventually he allowed that to happen but we have to understand that it wasn't the impetus the innovation didn't come from the state it did indeed come from these young Iranians who pushed for it and eventually found an official who had an open heart and an open mind and in fact in his interview with me he completely confused Khashayar Etemadi with Daryush. You know, when he was talking about Khashayar, he would keep calling him Daryush. Finally, he said, you know, this young man came to us and he had a voice which was a very revolutionary voice because Daryush himself had been regarded as being political and revolutionary, even though he was pre-revolutionary and of the Shah era and had to flee. But he, he was considered a political singer and still is a very political singer. He has, has a lot of social, uh, political, uh, critical content in his songs. But he said, he came to us and I realized the Shah era, the path, these pop singers are part of their history. And the phrase in, uh, that he mentioned to me was, the river flows into the sea and not the sea into the river. And what he meant by that was that that history was from Iran. It was a precedent or a legacy that Iranians within Iran could draw upon. That should not be a problem. And of course, that in itself is a revolutionary thought because the Islamic Republic and the founders of the Islamic Republic had said that anything prior to the revolution, the Shah era, had to be pretty much eliminated from history. But this official 
but he had a more open view and he said you know this is our history and it's a legacy that the youth can draw upon and so once they greenlighted one or two songs, uh, the flow was unstoppable. Mm. There were dozens of young people who were looking to make this kind of music. And all of a sudden, the airwaves opened up and this kind of new pop music was all over the place. There were dozens of concerts mushrooming all over Tehran and eventually the rest of Iran. And uh, the late 90s and early 2000s, during the Khatami era, is an era that many young people now in their 30s and 40s you know, who were coming of age back then, really fondly remember as quite an exciting period in, in Iran. And this um, the singer you spoke about, Khashoyore Etemadi, mm-hmm. um, if I remember correctly, he was banned, even though he, he had permit to perform. I mean, all of these singers at one point or another, the, the, the question of banning is also a little murky. It's mm-hmm. hard to know exactly... Oftentimes, these uh, artists are not told you are banned from singing on, let's say, state media or from having concerts. They just don't get permits. And so sometimes it happens that a singer will go for two or three years without being able to get a permit, and then all of a sudden he will get a permit. So most artists will have periods like that. And I think it has, it's, it's a good question because I think it has somewhat to do with the fact that the state bodies or the officials in charge of the cultural sphere like to retain some kind of control mm-hmm. over it. And so if a singer becomes too popular, for example, that can become an issue and they may put a break on a particular performer for a while before reallowing him again. We're going to talk about this uh, more later in our conversation. In late 90s, we also uh-huh. witnessed the birth of underground music in mm-hmm. Iran. And over time, we saw the diversification of underground music that included mm-hmm. rap, rock, heavy metal, and those genres which uh, government did not like or did not give than mm-hmm. the necessary permit to perform in public. Underground music initially in Iran was, for the most part, rock music. And it had, those, the seeds of it were planted already sort of in the late 80s. One of uh, Iran's most famous female folk singers, Sima Bina, her son, Arashimitui, was part of this beginning group of young men in Iran who were who played an instrument and who liked to perform in bands together and so there were little bands here and there who performed of course this is a time in Iran when anyone found with an instrument let alone anyone playing music let alone rock music would get into great trouble I mean this is a time when people's instruments were taken away from them if the police, for example, found you with your instrument on the street, even the, just the issue of a musical instrument was problematic. Throughout the war until 1988, and even for many years, for you know five, six years later, but these bands were practicing. They, it was very hush-hush. They had makeshift studios in their basements oftentimes, which is why underground music, the term in the Iranian case, is more apt than it could be elsewhere, because it was literally oftentimes in people's basement, so it was literally underground. But in these makeshift studios, they were really experimenting with uh, new forms of music. And toward the late 90s and early 2000s, people became aware of this underground rock scene. And one organization that was very significant in bringing this underground rock scene, or music scene, we should say, not all of it was uh, rock, of course, um, to the fore was Tehran Avenue. Tehran Avenue was a site run by Sohrab Mahdavi that basically covered cultural happenings around town. Tehran Avenue, so it's around Tehran, and would write about music, would write about film, theater, all kinds of things. And Tehran Avenue decided to run a contest called mm-hmm. Tehran Avenue Underground Music Contest. And this is at the time of dial-up, when, you know, you would dial a phone number and do-do-do-do-do and yeah. wait for, you know. And even at that time of super slow internet, they invited bands to submit their pieces for a contest. And a lot of bands submitted their pieces. And they also asked listeners, so on people who heard this music online, to vote for their favorite piece. And so, uh, you know, there was a number one, two, three places that were awarded with the prize was to be able to perform together at this concert. Unfortunately, that was not allowed by the Ministry of Culture. In the end, it was a very depressing 
experience for those participants. And in fact, this episode is something that Mujtaba Mir Tahmas covers in one of his documentary films. I believe that one is called Offbeat, if I'm not wrong. But uh, a wonderful documentary film about this whole episode. Tehran Avenue, through this contest, brings to the fore these bands. And some of these bands that I spoke with, uh, some of their members told me back then, you know, we didn't even realize that there were so many bands across Tehran playing music. And it was because of this contest that we realized this is a real movement. This is not just five bands across Iran. So this scene was very lively and became more and more lively. And as the restrictions on practice and recording, as especially as recording technology became much easier and people could just record with their laptops at home and didn't necessarily have to go to a studio and with the internet, but with the ability of being able to put your music out there and find your fans on the internet without having to go physically stand in a square and sell your tapes, which is something that Chavosh, the group that we talked about last time, actually had to do. So they actually had to go stand in squares and sell their tapes. This was no longer necessary with the internet. Mm -hmm. This really facilitated the growth and the flow and the exchange of this network of young people who consumed this music. One of the most famous bands early on that had a real following was Oham. And Oham was very interesting because they fused rock music with, po- with Persian poetry and also some Persian instrumentation. So they, they created this fusion music that was very rocky and resonated with young Iranians. It wasn't just another kind of rock that was similar to Western music. It really was their own. It, it wove together these different traditions. Oham, in fact, is the band that, by most counts, had probably the very first underground rock concert in Iran. It uh, was in 2000, I believe, 2000 or 2001, at the uh, Russian Orthodox Church because the spaces of minorities in Iran as well as foreign embassies are sort of um, outside of the jurisprudence of the Iranian government. So those are spaces where things that are outside of the legal framework of the Islamic Republic can happen. So Oham booked this concert at the Russian Orthodox Church. And it was an underground concert, but it was so many young people knew about it. Anybody who was sort of in the know and part of the happening youth in Tehran at the time knew about this concert and went to this concert. And I've subsequently managed to get some of the photos of that concert and they're there in the book. And what you see and what you hear talking to people who went to it was headbanging. I mean, it was just an amazing concert like any other rock concerts. Headbanging going on, crowd surfing going on. Oham playing its music and Oham had tried for many years to get a permit to publish its work officially and had been denied a permit for many, many years and eventually because of the internet managed to put it out there. They still continued for many years afterwards to get a permit even though they went abroad, gave concerts and finally in 2014, in 2014, so more than 15 years after they had started their musical activity and had tried to get a permit, they finally got a permit to give a concert in a performance space under Azadi Freedom Square. And I happened to be there and went to the concert. And it was really moving because you had Oham on the stage and on the right and left of the stage, you had the eyes of Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khomeini looking down as these rockers rocked. And what was really moving was that it had been so long since this band had created music that many of the fans who came to the concert had brought their children to see Oham. You mentioned in your book, Minders still monitor all concert audiences to make sure no one gets up to dance or becomes too enthusiastic in other ways. 
That's right. So whereas in the late 90s, when I first went back to Iran, I witnessed a scene at a hotel restaurant where there was a piano set up next to the pool and this pianist was playing some pieces. When he finished, nobody would clap. Everybody knew exactly that it was just okay to listen to this music outside in public, but it wasn't okay to clap. Now we've moved way beyond that. And, you know, there are these dance pop concerts that happen all over Iran. But even within these concerts, there are minders who are going around making sure that people don't get too excited so that they don't get up and dance. But people are clearly dancing in their seats with their upper bodies and flailing their arms around. So in one part, that's, of course, an issue of control, of being able to control the the public space and Mm -hmm. what can and cannot happen within it. But the parameters of what can and cannot happen within that space have changed quite a bit over the course of the last three or four decades. What about women vocalists and female alternative musicians? in the underground music scene? So women were shut out of the public space, as we know. In the underground music scene, there were few women who continued making their music. So one prominent one is Mahsa Bahdad, for example. She continued making her music, and which are sort of also kind of fusion music. She takes from Persian classical music and fuses it with other kind of more jazzy genres of music. And Masa Vahdat has not been able to publish an album in Iran or give a concert. She could give a concert to an all-female audience, but she's refused to do so, like other female musicians who I know. For example, Sima Bina also refuses to give concerts to all-female audiences. But women in the underground music scene, they weren't that numerous. And I think that has in part to do with the fact that for the young Iranians coming of age in a post-revolutionary Iran, first of all, the strictures were too great, the risks possibly too great, and also just too few examples. When you shut out the female voice completely from the public sphere, from the media, from everything, that will have some kind of consequence for young musicians coming about. So at some point in the late 90s, the Iranian state decided, you know what, we we will allow for women to sing. And they created the Jasmine Women's Festival, which was just female musicians singing to all female audiences. And I've been to some of these concerts and it's sort of slightly ridiculous because, you know, they make sure that no man whatsoever can in any way gaze inside or all women. Um, And some female musicians have refused to be part of that. But the point I would like to make is that when you shut out, when you eliminate the female voice from the public sphere, and I think this is something that we have seen in the Iranian example, it has its consequences. So the narrative that we would like to see, and we do see that every now and then, there are female musicians who break through that and who are able to voice their come out and be a voice. But it has led to a sort of a suppression, I think, of at least female vocalists. So when you look at the underground music scene, there are very few examples of female musicians who have come to prominence. Even within the underground music scene that's not regulated by the state, that's enabled by the internet, there simply aren't that many examples of female musicians, whether it's the underground rock scene or more and more in rap, that is a phenomenon. And in in rap music, one of the first, one of the pioneers of among female musicians was Salome MC. Oh, 
سه نفر از بودنم خانواده بدبین دوستی یا دروغ بودن و وطنم خیابوناش تیره مهبونی یا شلوغ بودن تو And bit by bit, there were also other ones, Sogand and so on. And now we're at a point where we're really at the third generation of post-revolutionary rappers. And among them are many more girls. These We're talking about teenagers here. So within rap music, that has been more of something that we've actually seen. But within rock music, for various reasons, and I've talked to many musicians about this, They think it has many reasons, but also in part to do just with the risks involved and with the with the social stigma that's still associated. And we don't really think of this being in the West, that there could be a social stigma associated with being a female singer or being in a you know rock band as a as a woman. But those social stigmas still exist. Um, Did you talk to some of these young vocalists and musicians? Yes. This is not just um, a phenomenon that happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Justina, who is this young female rapper who does very strong work, she said that this is just, uh, you know, she's talking about the last several years, that There are also issues associated with entering the, the underground music scene as a woman where you have to depend on the collaboration of other men. So mm-hmm. whether it's in the studio or in the production and whatnot, and that she, for example, was asked uh, for certain kind of favors, which she wasn't willing to offer in return for, for having uh, the kind of musical collaboration. So those issues are still also there. And also you talked about uh, rap music, which has been very popular in Iran and in the diaspora. Hitchcast is known as the godfather of Persian rap. Uh, in the late 90s, he founded, sort of early 2000s, he founded the website uh, Rap Farsi and really invited other people to post their uh, rap songs there. And his own narrative of it is that there was really nobody around to partake. There may be one or two other people, Yashar and and some other guy, and he really went out there and tried to get people interested and help them do it. And those young kids were interested because, as you know, Persian culture is very word-centric. Poetry is our most perfected art form. And so people took quite naturally, even young rappers took quite naturally to rap music because it is so word-centric. And another thing that the rappers told me was that they really like the revolutionary aspect of rap music. Rap music, of course, comes from revolutionary roots where hip-hop in the U.S., its beginnings at the very least, we're not talking about commercial hip-hop, is a very revolutionary music that, that has um, voiced opposition to all to the police state, to the racial inequalities in the U.S. and so on. So these rappers really also identified with the revolutionary aspect of hip-hop and rap music. Hitchcast uh, was one of the very early ones and one of the few to really break into the mainstream. So whereas the majority of young Iranians today listen to rap music, Hitchcast was someone who broke into the mainstream. So before he left Iran sometime around the you know in late 2009 many older people would know who Hitchcast is he had a song called um Ikhtilaf. it's about inequities in society and it starts with Inja Tehran this year's Tehran and then he lays out the land what kind of society this is and that's one song that many knew at the time تهرانه یعنی شهری که اچی که توش میبینی باعث تحریکه تحریک روه تا تو آشغال دونی میفهمی تو هم آدم نیستی یا آشغال بود اینجا همه گرگم میخواه باشی مثل بره بزن چشا گوش تو من با کنم یه ذره اینجا تهران لعنتی شوخی نیستش خبری از گل و بسنی چوبی نیستش اینجا چنگل بخور تو خورده نشی اینجا نصف اخته ای یه نصف وحشی اختلاف طبقاتی اینجا بیداد میکنه روح مردم و زخمی و بیمار میکنه کنار همه فقیره و مایه داره خفه توی تاکسی همه میخواد کرای نده حقیقا روشن خودتو به اون را نزن روشندرش میکنن پس بمون جا نزن خدا باشو من چند سالی با تر کنم خدا پاشو پاشو دیدشو ناراحت از کارم کجا هاشو دیدی تازه اول کارم خدا 
How did this young artist express their critique of political and social conditions in Iran through their music? And some of them left in the to mid 2000s. Some of them left after the 2009 protest movement. And so when these artists leave Iran and take refuge in another country, be it Europe or the United States, how does their music change and the issues that they address in their music change? That's a very interesting question. So the critique that they expressed in Iran itself really differed depending on the, the rappers. So someone like Hitchcast, for example, he never expressed explicit political criticism. He did express explicit sort of social criticism. But the way that his discourse was critical of the, um, of the given political circumstances was that he gave in his music the responsibility for carrying the flag and holding up in our, Iran's honor to Iran's, the young men of Iran. And there is a sort of sexist aspect to his music. I, maybe, maybe sexist is going too far, but it's certainly his music speaks more than anything to young men, young mm. dispossessed men, those, you know, the millions of young men in, in Iran who are deprived of economic well-being by a state that is corrupt, where nepotism thrives, where educational opportunities are very competitive, and where it's difficult to become your own man by making a living and being able to form your own family and moving on in the in the ladder of you know the hierarchy of the patriarchy and so he addresses the hordes of those hordes of young men and implies through his music that the state is no longer capable of holding up Iran's honor and it is the foot soldiers the young men on the streets who have to do that so it's sort of a discourse around honor and it's um, critical of the given circumstances in that way somebody else like Yas also a very very popular rapper he's more explicit so he talks about whatever is happening in, happening in society whether it's drug use or nepotism or Bahram who came about he wrote a song that was uh, not just explicit, it was in fact a song that was a letter written to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad um, and it addressed the hypocrisy of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. So the way that they're critical depends. Once these rappers leave Iran, so Surush Lashkari, aka Hichkas, he left Iran after the 2009 Green Movement, sort of early in 2010. He published a song as he was sitting on the plane to uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, he asked his friends to put the song on the internet. And the song was a commentary of the state's harsh measures against the protesters in the 2009 mm. Green Movement. And um, the song is called Yeruza Khubmiyad, A Good Day Will Come, when stones won't be flying in the air, when blood won't be running in the aqueducts. And so it wasn't still really explicitly against it, but it pointed to this point in time when all of this would be behind us, when that kind of repression, that kind of treatment of the citizens would be behind us. Of course, that implies that possibly that means the Islamic Republic is behind us. And so he had been questioned several times by the authorities and decided to leave the country because he thought that he could get into real trouble even with that kind of very muted song. And uh, once they leave the country, their concerns change. They're no longer within the Iranian society, within all of its restrictions. And so they start looking elsewhere. So Hichkas, for example, a few years after leaving Iran, had a song, Hajifiruz, about the racism that is behind the blackface clown that plays the daf and goes around the streets and is sort of the comical character of our Persian New Year. Mm. امتحانم کش رسید و هنوز باز باغ بخش بخش هنوز گشت ایس پشم دوباره هنگ بلند پخش برخس 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 بگیریم برداری رو جشن آب برخس 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 بگیریم برداری رو جشن. concerns just move elsewhere and they eventually with time they become less and less significant for the Iranian audience inside Iran itself. Doesn't mean these artists can't have very successful careers and find other audiences, expatriate Iranians, for example, Mohsen Namju has been very successful outside of Iran. He may have become less 
central to the discourse within Iran itself and his work may have become less uh, sort of burning to Iranians inside um, Iran and he himself doesn't aspire to do that kind of political work either. So the artist's focus shifts and they find other topics that are of importance to them and their lives. It's a natural process that happens. So how did consecutive governments after Rafsanjani, how did their attitude change towards alternative and underground music? Rafsanjani's government didn't really have to deal with alternative music at all because it hadn't come to the fore. Underground alternative music came to the fore during Khatami's term. And Khatami's presidency and his ministries, he became a bit of a lame duck president, especially in his second term. And the hardline forces became stronger in, in order to oppose the current of reformism. So we can't really assign everything that happened during Khatami's term even to Khatami, but he had created this amazing sort of much more open space where this underground music scene could thrive. And then Ahmadinejad was elected in 2005, but already toward the end of Khatami's term, this social and cultural space was becoming much more restricted. But then with Ahmadinejad's election, there was an open campaign to shut down these spaces. Uh, there was a, a campaign that was called the Morality Campaign. They went through the streets, arrested young people who looked like you know anyone that they thought didn't look according to the rules and guidelines and ideals of the Islamic Republic. So women with dress and headscarves that were too short, too colorful, too this, too that. Men who they perceived to be sort of obosh, hanging around, doing nothing useful, being a nuisance to society. They shut down a lot of cultural centers, took the funding from a lot of cultural centers. And all in all, they created a very active, open campaign where they marked these musicians and this whole scene as a satanic, satanic mm. scene. And there was a documentary that was aired on state television called Shock, where some of these musicians, including Hitchcast, were featured. And they were really openly linked with satanists who mm. were doing acts that no Iranian would be okay with. So they filmed these kids who said, oh yeah, I went to this concert and there was this kind of music. And afterwards, the people who were there, they started sharing their blood. And sometimes when they go far, they even start eating each other's feces. You know, I mean, just some crazy outrageous things were pinned on this music scene. And it was seen as a sort of a moral panic was created around the underground music scene. But the underground music scene survived and many of its uh, creators did leave the country and now live abroad but many more uh, bands have popped up and taken their place and uh, Iran is a very young country so there's no shortage of young people who want to create music and you know create their own kind of musical fair and the kinds of spaces that they want to inhabit and to reflect their sense of who they are in the world. This is no longer, you know, the pre-internet world. This is a highly connected, globalized world where they have access to everything that happens in the West. They're oftentimes very much on top of the cultural fair in the West, the newest thing, and they keep in touch with that and they're not staying behind. One of the issues that Iranian musicians have been... Uh faced with is uh, the permit process. Even mm -hmm. when they get it, their concerts in danger of being canceled, as we have seen more recently that many prominent singers, they got the permit, but the last minute or when they mm -hmm. showed up to the concert mm -hmm. hall, the, mm -hmm. the doors were chained and they could not perform. It was canceled. Right. Yeah. First off, what was the permit process like for people who wanted to publish their CDs or give concerts in public, you state in your book that it is probably fair to say that no building in Tehran has caused as much anxiety, disappointment, and desperation in musicians as the unmarkable building of the music office situated in Tehran's Rudaki Hall complex, which was renamed as Unity Hall or Talare Vahdat after the revolution. Most musicians in Tehran make numerous pilgrimages to the offices on the fifth and seventh floors of the white marble building in order to request permits for their work. 
Yeah, the permit system is labyrinthine and it is just drives people crazy. It's hard to know what you need to do to get a permit and it's very opaque. It's very hard for someone like me to even understand exactly at which point it is decided, okay, this group should get a permit to to perform or to publish their record. But what I can tell you is that there are these committees that sit down. So what you do is you first have to fill out a ton of forms, give all sorts of uh, prerequisites upon which you're judged. So what your album cover would look like. It's very important who's behind you, who's the producer, who's going to, does he have some weight within the ministry? Is he someone who's been working with the ministry for decades on several artists? Then he may have more weight. Is it a young person? Then it really will depend on the dynamics and the chemistry and whatnot. But basically your work is examined by these committees. There's a music committee and a committee on lyrics. They sit down, they're five to six people. They happen to be, for the most part, musicians who've been part of the official bodies of the Islamic Republic, whether it's uh, the Music Council of State Television and Radio or the universities or the House of Music. So they're musicians, mostly classical musicians, Persian classical or sort of national classical music. They listen to your lyrics, they decide whether it should be passed or failed. If you fail, you have uh, you can't apply again for another, depends on the lyrics or the music, for another three months or six months. You can apply again. If you fail again, then the period within which you can't apply becomes longer. So it depends. So people keep submitting, musicians keep submitting their music and lyrics, and uh, they're never told exactly, you know what, we can't do this because of this and this, maybe you can change this. Oftentimes, they never get a response back. They don't even get a no. They just don't hear back from them. So they keep going, they keep begging, please tell me what's going on. And if they're lucky, maybe somebody will tell them, hey, look, it's too edgy, it's too rocky. It's uh, That rarely happens. So it's a bit of a mystery. It has to do a lot with, I believe, the economics of it, with who the producers who are behind it, the profitability, and who gets to have a share of that, perhaps, though not necessarily these music councils do but perhaps other, these music committees, but perhaps other people who have a hand in the, in the business. But I hope that one day somebody who has been intimately involved in these music committees and the process of permit issuing comes out and writes a memoir and enlightens us all on you know, how this whole thing happens. But one thing that's for sure is that this ambiguity, this keeping people hanging is to the benefit of state officials because there are no clear criteria and no set ways of doing things. They can change their mind on the given political circumstances. Is it a moment when things seem to be okay in Iran and things are quite open? Well, why don't we, you know, this time let's let's allow this musician to perform. Is it post-2009 and things are not looking so good? Well, maybe we don't want a rapper to go on stage. Not that any rapper has ever been led on any stage. Not having very clear criteria allows them to have an open hand and to be to go as they wish with the given circumstances. Because recently we have seen an unprecedented increase in concert cancellations. For example, one of the recent cases is Shahram Nazari. That has created an uproar in the Iranian music community. Musicians have written a letter to Hassan Rouhani, Iran's president, objecting to increasing mistreatment of the music community and the illegal cancellation of concerts. I think that the social and cultural sphere and the musicians and practitioners and the participants of that sphere are a soft target. And there has been some a lot of anxiety uh, on the side of the more hardline and conservatives following the second election of Hassan al-Rouhani. And what we're seeing is a backlash against that. They're very nervous because again and again and again, Iranians have come out and voted for the more reformist candidate among the four front runners. People didn't really expect people to come out and vote for in an election of the Islamic Republic after 2009 and after all of that happened. And yet people came out en masse and voted in uh, Hassan Rouhani and they came out again just this year to vote for Rouhani again. Mm-hmm. And so the Iranian public is expressing over and over again what kind of politics it wants. It wants a more free, a more open society and the closure of concerts is ultimately the backlash of the more conservative forces within society that are 
anxious and nervous over over the political trends that are so visible to everyone as far as the vast public is concerned in Iran. They have more power to do so. So it's not that difficult for, you know, the intelligence ministry, the the um, interior ministry, those are positions that are, even though a part of Rouhani's cabinet, they must be approved by the supreme leader. So the forces within the government that can close down a concert, it could also just be vigilantes, it could be the besiege of that area, the Sapah, the Revolutionary Guard, doesn't take much for them to just close down the social sphere just to make sure that these spaces don't open too much. The Iranian music community and activists, they are putting pressure on Rouhani. After the election at a press conference, he said one of the outcomes of this year's elections was that everyone was at peace with music. But he said, however, we are not too fond of cheap music. Some say that it's fine as well. But in any case, I am certain our new government will give more support to the cultural community. It has not happened. What Rouhani was referring there to was the everyone is at peace with music. He was referring to the conservative frontrunner, Ibrahim Raisi, mm-hmm. um, cozying up with the rapper Amir Tatalu. Because Amir Tatalu, this uh, you know rapper who, in his many years of beginnings, sang about parties and girls and so on, and has uh, arms full of tattoos, but had sort of an about face, probably because of a combination of factors. He endorsed Ibrahim Raisi, this cleric who is the custodian of Iran's holiest shrine in Mashhad. So this this photo was going around everywhere of Amir Tatalu with his forearms bare, full of tattoos, sitting next to Ibrahim Raisi and endorsing him. And the fact that Raisi allowed this meeting to take place yeah. uh, shocked everybody because how could a cleric like that sit next to a, a rapper who is being called cheap by some? And... Um, so he he was referring to the point that, well, if Raisi can sit with a rapper, then obviously the musical sphere should really open up. We have many musicians who are much more, who make a fakhir kind of music, fakhir being a, a word that in this context signifies a sort of quality or, you know, higher music. And so what Rouhani was saying was, if he can sit with a rapper, then, you know, the musical sphere of, of these other musicians should really open up. And people are putting pressure on Rouhani saying, hey, we, you were elected with a mandate because a majority of Iranians came out again and voted for you. You have a mandate. You are not just there to do business as usual. You're there to really change things for us. That's why we came out. And they're putting pressure on him. But to the extent to which he will have an impact on the sphere is, uh, you know, you see the result of it is, is questionable. It's interesting, this guy, Tatalu, that you talk about, he served prison terms in 2013 and 16. And he was charged with, quote, encouraging moral corruption. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. And, you know, some will say, I haven't spoken to him personally, but some will say that he, he's been put under psychological pressure and pressure in his, in his detentions or you know, he's been perhaps promised something or it's hard to tell. He did come out and sing a song called Nuclear Energy, where he collaborated with the Iranian Navy and was on a Navy ship. He was with actual Iranian soldiers in this video singing the song. So many saw that as him sort of coming around and the reasons for it. He says this is just how he feels. He feels Iran is under threat of attack by America, that someone like Rouhani is too soft a sort of president for Iran and that he's uh, his heart is in it and he's taken sides with the conservatives. I also wanted to ask you about the cover of your book, which is the picture of a young woman with her eyes and mouth closed. But in your book, women are not prominently featured. Why? That is correct. Um, my goal with the book was to look at the public sphere of the Islamic Republic and highlight those musicians who had a very public face were consumed by a lot of people. So what was permitted and what were the kinds of discourses that were more or less mainstream and were coming from within the Islamic Republic? So because the female voice has been banned, and as we discussed, there has been no female musician in post-revolutionary realm within the framework of the Islamic Republic who's had a public face or a prominence like any of the musicians I cover. 
there couldn't be one. Mm. The photo on the cover of the book is really a nod to that because, and I write about this in the book, it's a photo from a series called Listen by Nushatava Kolyan. And she features these female musicians, they're professional musicians, vocalists, who can't publish albums or sing publicly to mixed gender audiences. And so she stages them in front of these sparkly backgrounds and the very passionate act of singing, but you can't hear them because their voice has been cut out. Mm. It wasn't my choice, by the way, it was my publisher's choice. But for me to agree to have that picture, and I did think about it a lot, for me to agree to have that picture on the cover of the book really made a lot of sense because it is a nod to the silencing of women that I write about in the book. And the silenced woman who you can't hear in a series called Listen is precisely what comes through in the book because the the large majority of all of this musical discourse is male. And that is as a result of the ban on the female voice. And I do hope that someone writes the book about what's happened to the female voice. But this is the first book on the issue of music and politics in post-revolutionary Iran. And so to deal with the public sphere and and the public discourse, there was unfortunately the lack of the female voice meant that it couldn't really be part of the core of the book. So in recent years, we have seen a proliferation of pop music, similar but a tamer version of what I grew up with before the 1979 revolution. It seems like the state treats pop music differently than alternative and independent music. Why? Pop music is, to a great extent, it is an industry now. It's a culture industry. It's regulated. There's certain producers. It's uh, it's it's more or less within within control, so to speak. And you know, pop music in Iran, as in elsewhere in the world, isn't really revolutionary. It only garnered that revolutionary aspect because of what it represented in Iran before the revolution. But when you think about it, it's, it's just the lyrics are usually quite tame. The music is totally mediocre. Uh, there's nothing revolutionary about pop music. And it's, it's a sphere that is very well regulated. So this is something that Asif Bayad, who I mentioned, talks about. He doesn't talk about pop music or any of this, but he does talk about uh, the issue of control. So whatever is within the paradigm of the Islamic Republic, whatever is controllable, that's more permitted than anything that might escape that paradigm. You make a very interesting argument at the end of your book. You say the state had banned joyous music for two decades. And now that the state had reversed course to allow it, in its own interest, it authorized only an innocuous, quote, empty joy, as if it were trying defensively to occupy any space that might otherwise be taken up by real, possibly political feelings or even just real spontaneous joy outside of its control. So they still have problem with how people experience joy. Absolutely, because when you think about it, joy is a very spontaneous... At the end of the day, you know, the the slaves in the South, in America, something very revolutionary for them to do was to sing or to just hum a tune. Mm. And uh, this is how they kept their very strong musical traditions alive. The African slaves were brought here. When you think about it, the joy coming from within you, it, it is a very subversive thing because it can't, at the end of the day, can't be controlled, right? Mm. Even if you're in the worst kind of servitude, if you express that you still have that within you, that's subversive. That's not something that anybody can control. And so the issue of joy is, as long as it can be regulated, as long as it's a kind of joy that can be contained, in that kind of pop music, it's okay. But once it starts being coupled with spontaneity, something that is can't be controlled, it becomes an issue. And that's why some of you know, the alternative or underground music and, uh, you know, the kind of spontaneity or the kind of outside of the paradigm lyrics or music. It's also about sound, the kinds of sounds that they can create that haven't been com- approved and sanctioned with an Islamic Republic stamp. All of that is problematic. Dr. Nahid Siamdus is the author of Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran, 
For more information and to find the music you heard on today's program, visit vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Oh, 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 oh,
Javonie 